Welcome to Invest Stories, a podcast about real stories, real estate, and taking real action. Join hosts John Cooper and Kyle Robertson as they talk investing, mindset, and taking that first step. We all have a story. What's yours? The Invest Stories Podcast. Booyah! Hey, Kyle. What's up, John? How are you? Welcome to Investories, listeners. Well, thank not you. Kyle. I appreciate you already, that. You knew that. <laughs> Click the link. Thanks for having me. <laughs> how's, how's it going, Kyle? Good, man. Good. Sunny and warm in the Pacific Northwest today. It's it's weird. It's never that way in March. And cause cause for celebration, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You it's made spending, it. Spending some time outside. I even mowed my yard yesterday. It's like a month okay. early compared to what every other year. So. It's good. That's good. Yeah. We we just get rain here now. I guess we switch weather or something. I'm okay with that. I've been a little jealous of this San Diego, San Diego weather that you got going on down there. Well, it's been rainy a lot. But um, no, I was going to say 75 hard, done, right? You finished it. Or is it today? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, oh, tomorrow. Tomorrow is the day, man. I'm going to set this thing down and put it behind me. And uh, But you know, I... That being said, I think a lot of it's going to come with me for hopefully for the rest of my life. I mean, mm-hmm. it's some amazing habits, good habits. And uh, yeah, it's been great, though. It's I feel I feel really good. I feel really accomplished. This was hard, which is in the name. So I knew that right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it it's man, what a feeling of accomplishment for anybody that hasn't done it yet. or don't even know what it is. Look up 75 hard. It's uh, a program created by Andy Frisella. Uh, he has a you know the first form uh, program, which is a, a website that sells supplements and also does calorie tracking, which is the same as kind of like my fitness pal. And you, but you also get a personalized coach, one on one coach. You can contact anytime. There is a, like a fifteen dollar a month cost for this, but I've been That's on that good. for like two years, and it's been amazing. Um, if you want to take control of your health, I'd definitely look into those things. What was the most difficult part of it? I'd say probably the the toughest was this really forced me to create a schedule, which I just didn't have that. You and I have talked about this even on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a schedule. I just kind of, you know, wake up and do what I want to do, roll into the office at noon and, you know, do some maintenance stuff on our properties, you know, remotely, obviously. Um, but other than that, this is, this, I have to eat 3000 calories a day. So I have to plan my meals. I have to plan my calories. I have to do two workouts a day on 75 hard. So I got to plan those in there because each of them are 45 minutes minimum. And I have to drink a gallon of water. Holy crap. That is, that right there takes planning just by itself. Cause you want to be done with it by like seven. Otherwise you're going to pee the bed, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I didn't do luckily, but I mean, it's that's, like, good. Uh, yeah. that's my next question. <laughs> so you got to be really, really kind of, um, you got to be careful about that. You got to be intentional about the way you plan your day with this thing, which is really, it almost cascades yeah. into a whole bunch of other really cool habits that you got to create. No, oh, maybe I'll do. Th- I might do this then. Next. Do it. It's great. I got. To, I got to run a half marathon on Sunday. Okay. Well, this will be good. So you maybe can do, you can. Make I guess your... it's outdoor. Yeah. Well, you got to do one outdoor workout, and yeah. uh, mine. Mine was usually a, a walk with a weight vest on. You can just do a walk. You don't have to have a weight vest. And the other one was some indoor gym workout. You know, but you got to do nice. it every day. There's no rest days. You got to follow a certain diet of your choosing. There's nothing. They don't set parameters for that. You just have to be on it. And if you fail, and if you make any concessions in the program like say you only drink three quarters of a gallon you it doesn't matter if you're on day 60 of this program you're back to day one if you wow. don't take a progress picture every day you're back to day one um, i feel you on that i, yeah. I do because i i play wordle 
and I oh, missed yeah. a day the other same, day. I got same up to, thing. I got up to 99 <laughs> and I missed a day, and I got a, so I totally get where you're coming from on that. It's very exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wow. Well, that's cool. Thanks for the insight into that. Um, we we do have a guest this week, despite did our we? padding oh, for, right. for a good 10 minutes. No, it's only three minutes. It seems longer. Um, so Katie Neeson, uh, she she's in your circle. You know her through a, a few different channels. I think you guys said you were on the Maui Mastermind together uh, and you've kind of come up through um, accountability groups and masterminds together. So, um, yeah, I mean, a super impressive guest, unbelievable person and just absolutely crushing it in um in the redevelopment or rejuvenation space which um was something i've i've kind of heard about and i like the sound of and didn't really know too much about it so uh yeah it's it's a it's a super interesting conversation right she's she's got so so much vision you know and mm-hmm. and i'm i'm jealous of her vision cuz she is hyper focused on her market which is in the type of business that she's in which is downtown revitalization and and trying to make what she described as a boarded up town ever since she was a kid into this beautiful spot. Mm-hmm. She, she has this hyper-focused vision and figured out how to make a living out of it, you know, using partnerships and some creative ways of doing her deals. And she's such a wealth of information on these types of things. And she started pretty much the same as a lot of us did with some fix and flips and some burrs and then went into small multifamily and then realized, you know, this replacing your income stuff, is a little bit more difficult and time consuming than than what was, you know, I guess pitched to most of us. And mm-hmm. um she pivoted into this downtown revitalization thing and and so many cool things came of this and she's still right in the thick of it, doing great and and being successful with it. And uh this is definitely one that you guys want to listen to if you've ever considered any kind of development or revitalization of your own downtown, then she gives a lot of really good tips. I'm I'm going to take it a little bit further than that, which is so one of the things I've wrestled with, which is what I want to do with real estate and what I want my next deal or my first big deal to look like is how do I want that to feel? And I think yeah. the passion and vision really shines through of like, yeah. well, what am I actually doing here? How am I contributing? Not just to your area, but like the area you're investing in. Are you contributing to it? Are you taking away? Are you adding value? Are you just becoming, we do use the term slum landlord halfway through the episode, (laughs) but, but joking aside, are you just propping up kind of bad landlording and bad kind of tenant support and, uh, you know, not actually propping up an area, but actually taking away from it. So I, I think that's, um, a universal theme that we should probably all think about as we as we kind of deploy our money and invest in, in neighborhoods. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's, it's so easy, especially for new landlords to be like, okay, I bought this place. It's cut me a little check every month, set it on autopilot and forget it. And, uh, she, she's got some, some great recommendations for, you know, she talks about, she didn't actually use this word, I don't think, but legacy is, is a really big piece. And mm-hmm. maybe she did use it. I can't remember, but she, she did talk about, you know, generations from now, <laughs> if somebody wants to tear down my building that I poured my heart and soul in for the benefit of this place, for, of, of this town, uh, I'm going to haunt you for it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's passion right there and it's vision and it's drive and, and it's very inspiring. Yeah. And before we jump into the episode, if you like our stuff um, and you're listening, watching on YouTube, why not like and subscribe to our channel? Uh, We really appreciate it. And like the video as well. Give us a thumbs up. It always helps. And if you're listening on on Apple or Spotify, why not drop us a a review? Give us a, a good five stars. Keep us going. Keep us happy. 
uh, and all that good stuff. At least for Kyle's uh, sterling effort of the 74 days so right. far. There's one day to go, Kyle. Yeah, one more. I'm almost there. And also follow us on uh, Instagram on Investories Pod. And without further ado, here's the episode. All right, welcome to the podcast, Miss Katie Neeson. How are you, Katie? Awesome. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Well, we are super excited to have you. Uh, for the listeners, I've known Katie for, gosh, what's it been? A couple of years now, I want to say, since the very first Maui Mastermind and... Uh, Got an opportunity to listen to what Katie's story is over the last couple of years and how it's changed, how it began, pretty much all of it. And it's all super interesting, so we're, we're super excited to get into it. Um, Katie, uh, first of all, tell all of our listeners where you're based out of and maybe give us a, a quick once over on what your, what your business is. Awesome. So I am in Bryan, Texas and on cue... I just had a train roll by, so maybe y'all will even hear it in the background. I do downtown redevelopment, and in downtown Bryan, we have a ton of railroad tracks that come through, and that's just the eclectic vibe we're going for. <laughs> I actually have railroad tracks right outside my office, too, so maybe they'll, yeah, you'll, you're going to hear the same I, thing from me. I don't also. have any railroad tracks. I feel really, really let down by that. It you're in San Diego, so it's just sailboats in San Diego and all this Sailboats and stuff. concrete. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're, the, you're at the end of the railroad track, so there's nowhere else to go once yeah, they no, get there. No, no one comes down here. <laughs> That's it, yeah. It just stops. Uh, so so talk, us about, talk to us about what, what that is, like... Okay. You're, so you're doing downtown redevelopment? Yeah. Regeneration, is that the right yeah. word? Yeah, so revitalization is what we call it. But I started flipping a few years back, quit my W-2, started flipping, loved the creativity of it, and, um, you know, got quit my W-2 job so I could have freedom and passive income, and then realized flipping's just a job. So I totally missed the mark on that. So we decided, you know what, we need to start buying some assets. Now I had dabbled in rentals before for low income housing and I totally hated it. I hated the routine. I hated, um, the client base. I hated it all. So, (laughs) so when we decided we need assets to create passive income, we kind of did some soul searching to figure out, but what assets do we actually want? And that led us to downtown because what we love about flipping is the creativity. And we wanted something that we would be proud to show people when they came to town. Right. So we wanted to be like, Hey, you want to see what we're doing? Yeah. Let's drive by and show you. And we did that with our flip houses. And one day we're walking down main street and it's this old boarded up building that we had seen hundreds of times before and just something different happened and we're like wouldn't it be cool to office out of that building and so um the first thought was i'm sure that either the numbers don't work or something's wrong with it because it hasn't been renovated yet and everything else on the block has but i looked up the owner googled it found out who it was shot him an email he went to the same university that i did and he actually contacted us back and we bought the building when we got inside of it it had uh, dirt floors and all it was was exterior walls and it was connected like you see on main street so it was the shared exterior walls a roof that the city made one of the previous owners put on because it had all rotten out and dirt floors with a cistern and so that was kind of our foray into redevelopment 
So a blank. And, sorry, go ahead, John. Yeah, what what did that become? That, yeah. that blank canvas. So um, it's funny that you say blank canvas because I'm actually super intimidated by blank canvas. So for me, it was like four walls. So it was something to work inside of, and we turned it into a two story mixed use in that it's retail on the bottom and offices on the top and it's a long skinny kind of quintessential downtown building so we took the lowest rent space which was the one with no windows on the second floor right in the middle and then we had offices on either end and retail shops on the first floor and that was in 2016 and so we still have it and it is we had murals painted on the inside left all the brick exposed um, reused like the 1800s fire door like it's a super cool building and you still own it. Still own it. As a matter of fact, just before, so when, it was 2020 when COVID hit, right? So just before COVID hit, December, the year before of 19, we refinanced it. We got over 100% of our money back out. And so now it's like an annuity. We have no money left in the building and it pays us every month. So they don't all ah, end like that. Dream. Yeah, wow. they don't all end like that, but that one worked out pretty good. That's amazing. And that's, you know, I guess you know, also for the listeners here, this is something that I think a lot of people can relate to, at least the desire to do what you've done, um, myself included. I love my little town, and I think that it has so much potential to just be this incredible spot on the map where, you know, a destination of sorts maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's intimidating, you know, to think. And, and for a lot of people who start in the same way that you did, which is fix and flips or even, you know, burrs, single family homes, looking at these big commercial downtown buildings, these are monsters. You know, these are, these are old buildings. These are buildings that have old wiring and plumbing. And then not, not even the talk, not even mentioning things like you have to deal with city governments, mm-hmm. you know, trying to deal with permits. And, you know, uh, we've got this issue here locally where everything downtown, if it gets renovated, has to be structurally sound for earthquakes, mm-hmm. which is outrageously expensive and just kind of ruins the underwriting. How did you get over that big mental hump or was it even a big mental hump for you to switch from something like single family flips to these big commercial structures? You know, it's a good question because a lot of times fear is what gets in people's way. And people always think if I could just get through that fear, I'll be able to do whatever's in front of me. And what I learned was like dealing with fear is a way of life. It's not an obstacle to overcome, right? And so already, I've already quit my job. So I've already shown some propensity to take the leap. And I figured if I'm going to bet on someone, it might as well be myself. So when we started renovating, so when I say we, my business partner is my mom. So it's two chicks in the construction world And we GC our own projects. So that in and of itself was a little fearful. But what's nice about it is I kind of like people underestimating us. Like my favorite saying is underestimate me. That'll be fun. And so we kind of, (laughs) we kind of just make a game out of it. So we stumbled into redevelopment and, you know, you say, oh, it's a big project. I mean, it was 6,000 square foot, which is big, but not huge. It had serious uh, structural issues, so that part is true, but that's what you have an engineer for, right, to say if it can be overcome or not. The interesting thing about development is, you know, like in construction or um, in remodels, you have to have a certain skill. In redevelopment, the skill is project management. Because it's so complex, you can't know and be great at all the pieces. So it almost relieves some of that burden because no one who does redevelopment knows all the codes for architect, fire, 
civil engineer, you know, city process, the construction, you know, management, branding, marketing, like it's all encompassing. So what you have to do is be the person who manages all of those people and get them all on the same page. And so, you know, it was, it was, we fell into it, which is unfortunate because we tried to find resources on how to do redevelopments. There really aren't any, I don't know of any podcasts. I don't know of any books. So we kind of just struggled and learned our way through it, but it was, we evolved, but it's not as scary as you think. Like it's just knowing, having self-confidence in whatever you're doing, that obstacles are going to arise just like it wouldn't a flip, just like it will in an apartment building that you own and confidence that you'll be able to solve the problem and figure out what the next step is and not worrying about figuring out what the end game is when you start. Just know you'll figure it out as you go. Jump out of that plane and build the parachute on the way down. That's where life gets fun. (laughs) I love that. Um, I do want to take it back a few steps and probably a few years, really. So 2016 was kind of your entry point into real estate. What did what was that um, kind of absorption of knowledge? What did that look like? How what kind of got the, the wheels turning and then kind of got you educated enough to be confident to leap in? Yeah. So 2016 is actually when we jumped into redevelopment. I got into, I bought my first rental property in 2006 and this is how it happened. Y'all are going to be shocked. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. (laughs) And I was, what? What I know. Have y'all heard of that book? (laughs) Um, I was working in commercial banking and read that book And a lot of things started clicking for me and it just kind of put a framework around things that I had thought, but didn't know how to verbalize. And so within reading that book, within months, I had quit my job, moved back to my hometown and bought a rental. And so that's what got us started. My first rental was a $17,000 condo. And I just wanted to prove, because I don't know if y'all have Googled Robert Kiyosaki's name, but there's some crazy stuff out there. So I didn't know if, Super crazy. yeah. So I didn't know if the guy was for real or not. So I needed to prove the concept to myself. So I even financed that $17,000 condo to make sure like it could cash flow you, and just go through the whole process, prove myself that it worked. So then in 2010 is when we were like, Hey, we want to generate cash flow, And we jumped into four plexes. Um, my real estate knowledge before that was really limited. Uh, but my business partner is my mom that I mentioned. She's been a realtor for 45 years now, um, but she's always been the real estate side, not really the investor side. So she didn't really even have the mindset of the investor. She had lots of limiting beliefs actually from the realtor's perspective. But again, it was just that thing that like, let's just test it out small and see if it works. And once it did, we just grew from there and figured out what we hated and what we loved and really ran towards the stuff that we loved and away from the stuff that we hated. So we did not, I did not have a lot of knowledge at all. Um, and so, you know, it's just one of those things, like just take a chance. If it doesn't work, nothing's permanent, right? If I had done it and lost all 17,000, I didn't put my family at risk. So that was a risk I was willing to take. If I stayed in my corporate job forever, I already knew I would hate that because I was already experiencing it. And so like, to me, that seems like an unreasonable risk to be willing to stay somewhere you're at because you're comfortable with it and unwilling to test something that you actually might enjoy. So I just always try and think of action steps as just the next step down the path. It's nothing permanent. And if you don't like it, you can always pivot, redo. Or when I quit my job, I had a job. So my assumption was when I need another job, I'll be able to go and find one. Yeah. Absolutely. And and on and you touched on a good piece there, which is, you know, comfort really is the enemy of progress. And um, I'll, I'll uh, 
I'll say that that's my quote. Don't Google it because <laughs> probably not. But <laughs> but uh, you know, if you're if you're not uncomfortable in your investing or in your business game, then you're probably doing something wrong. You know, you you really need to do something to really get the get the juices flowing, get your mind working a little bit because that really is our most important asset is our mind. So you spent ten years in the essential essentially the residential real estate mm-hmm. game um, as an investor, not necessarily as uh, you weren't a redeveloper yet. Mm-mm. So you got into the quadplex game. What did that, you know, once you got into quadplexes over the next 10 years, what did that business building look like for you? You know, what were you purchasing? What were your ultimate goals before you went into the redevelopment game? Well, you know, it was what I think a lot of people think is all I need is enough passive income to replace, you know, what my income is, and then I can leave, live free forever. But what we don't realize is that passive income is actually not a great replacement for W-2 income because so much of it needs to be reserved for things that go wrong and then it goes up and down. So you don't want to depend on it until it's a really big base. So lots of people start generating this passive income and then realize uh, this could take a really, even though you go, oh, 10 homes and then it equals, yeah, but you're not... You know, you're not accounting for all. You're not accounting for vacancies. You're not accounting for new roofs and all of that. And if you're having to live on it, you're certainly not accounting for reinvesting into the next project. And so that is, we bought those in 2010, and that's when lots of stuff was on the market in foreclosure, right? So they were all vacant and they were beat up, and we renovated them like two chicks would. And then we rented them and everyone was like, oh, they're beautiful. It's not just white walls. Like we really, they weren't fancy, but they were just above most rentals. And we loved the fixing them up and getting them rented. It was the maintenance part we didn't like. So at that point, I think we'd bought three or four, um, fourplexes in enough, you know, that was probably over an 18 month period. It happened pretty fast and realized we didn't like it. So we just sold all those to an investor and said, let's just do what we love, which is the flipping houses. And it met the income. When I realized passive income isn't going to replace active income in any reasonable amount of time, we loved the flips and it was creating pops of income and we got addicted to it. We became known for it. We were doing everything in our downtown. So for our safety net, if we flipped a house, it had to be able to be rented and at least break even as plan B. So it eliminate, it eliminated all the high end houses because they can't generate enough cash flow to break even if I have to go and rent them. So it kind of pushed us towards the downtown. At the same time, what was going on was the revitalization in downtown and those neighborhoods. And we have a big university here and we were finding out a lot of the professors and staff loved the urban living because most of them didn't grow up here or even in Texas. They came from more densely populated areas. They'd get in a car with a realtor and they'd take them to some subdivision with a cul-de-sac. And they're like, what do you think we are? Like 90? Like we don't, want to live in a cul-de-sac neighborhood and so like it just it took hold and people loved what we were doing we loved what we were doing and it was our identity which is why we stayed in it longer than we should have we knew real estate's a cycle we knew that we needed to be creating passive income but we were just you know like it was our identity so it was hard to make that shift so that's in 2016 we're like hey let's just buy one cash flowing asset a year and slowly start building passive income without having to give up all of our actual active income. And the flips were creating pops of cash that would let us invest into new projects. And then COVID happened and we realized like there was at least a two week period where we didn't know if anyone would ever buy a house again, right? Like the whole world shut down and that's when we felt super vulnerable And we were like, we have got to expedite this process. So let's take the reputation that we've built, 
the skills that we love and the trend that's happening, which is the revitalization of mid-sized towns across the entire country, and let's expedite creating passive income and putting deals together with some private investors, which help generate the income side. So we're able to do the passive income and the income side by side instead of having to give up one for the other. I, yeah, and I, I love what you said there about if anybody listening, rewind for a couple of minutes and, and listen to what Katie said again, because if you ever hear a guru or somebody trying to sell you something, they're going to say, hey, passive income is the way, replace your income and you'll be free forever. So much truth to that. There's just so many other moving pieces to, to an investor who invests for, pass, invests for passive income to live on that a lot of people don't really think about. You know, it's like, and it's the biggest one, the most important piece I, to me personally that you said right there is, when you get to the point where you've replaced your income and now you're living on it, you have done nothing to grow. Yes, you've gotten your time back, okay? If you are a true investor and you're not doing things actively and it's passive, which is virtually impossible, but if it is somewhat passive, yeah, you've got your time back, which is great, but good luck getting growth. You know, yeah. The only thing that you really have to hope for is appreciation and rents and appreciation in values where you can someday maybe refinance. We're talking years for this kind of stuff mm -hmm. to work correctly. And um, you're, you're speaking truth in contrary to a lot, what a lot of the, the big gurus are trying to sell you. And I love that. And I appreciate that. So thank you for, for driving that point home because that's big. Yeah. I mean, one thing to remember, whether it's real estate or your business, growth is super expensive. And so where passive income makes sense is once you're done growing, it's almost like your retirement account, right? You build up this big portfolio and then when you're ready to just live off of that, it's there and you can. But if you're trying to build a portfolio and lift off the passive income, well, where is the money coming from to invest in the next one? And that leaves syndications, right? And so you can generate income by charging fees and put together syndications. My deal was I am going to work just as hard on a deal that I own a hundred percent of as a deal that I own ultimately five to 10% of once all the GPs, you know, split up their part. So I didn't want to own 5% of 7,000 doors to me. That sounds horrible. Now, that's just me. It's great for some people. I'm with you. I, I want to own 100% of everything, but I also realized that was going to take forever to get there, unless you're Kyle. Like, he's the only guy I know who can build a whole freaking <laughs> portfolio all by himself. He's amazing. And so we tried to, like, find the middle ground. How can we own 30 to 60% of everything so that we could have it accumulate faster? Well, it's not pulling all the cash flow out of everything that's generating money and spending it on lifestyle because you got to have something to be able to dump into the next project as long as you're growing. And then once you're done growing and you're ready to do whatever the next phase of life is, then you can live off the cash flow of that portfolio. Yeah. I love that. That's, that's so interesting. One of the things I was reading your profile before we uh, had this conversation, one of the things that was really interesting is you talk about um, the vision and passion and kind of developing mm -hmm. that um, as, as part of this rejuvenation piece and I, I i think that sounds really really good especially when it's your hometown yeah uh, did you look at other markets as well or was it were you kind of laser focused on on being at home yeah so it just worked out well for us i'm fourth generation here 
And so I grew up with the stories of what downtown used to be, which is super similar in a lot of towns. And my parents remember it being super active. It was boarded up by the time I was a kid. And I spent my whole life listening to people say that it was going to be revitalized. And I was like, you people, a bunch of crazy nuts. Like, it's just never going to happen. And then once it did, it allowed us to, we were just in the right location. But it's happening in towns all over town. We could have easily gone to another one. And now we get a lot of interest from surrounding towns that call us and say, hey, we have a building. And it's usually a city because they're trying to get theirs ignited. Hey, we have this building. Would you guys come here and rent? innovate this building and kind of start it, do what you've done, bring people downtown. And, you know, we, we could do that, but then now I got to build a whole new team in a new location. And so we've been lucky that there's enough growth here that we can keep our people here and just be consultants or equity partners in those deals without having to create the team. But we are super passionate about this. And I'm like that about, I'm all in or all out. Like I can't be stuck being miserable. Just ask my family, you know, like I feel like my parents were the generation that they were like silently suffering for the benefits of their children. Like I will suffer for the benefit of my children, but it will not be silent. You will know the sacrifice that I am making like daily. Right. (laughs) And so that also applies to my lifestyle. I don't want to be doing a job that I'm miserable in. Otherwise, I'd have just kept my W-2 job, right? And so I have to be passionate about it. But I'm not just passionate about my town. I'm passionate about the reuse of all of these downtowns where the investment has already been made. They're super cool old buildings. They're way better than the building you can build today. And so we want to enable and help other people like see the opportunity, understand the opportunity, and be able to implement it wherever they're at. Because even though we're not doing it, it's that good can be spread all across the country. We don't need to be there to do it. We're just trying to show people that it's totally accessible and it's not nearly as intimidating as it sounds. They've already done the hard stuff. They've already put all the utilities there. The trend is already getting people to come back town. town. So then you just have to have the vision and the pieces and figure out how to just manage the process. And so that's our passion when it's outside of our town is helping people be comfortable doing it in their town. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. And it's just a it's it's just a a feel good thing. Mm -hmm. Right. You get to actually see everything that you do all the time. And there's a lot of pride in that. And that's that goes a long way as towards mental health and just essentially longevity of staying in your business. You know, you can look at this and be like, I created that. That looks that way because of me. And that's that's a big piece when you when you're in the real estate game, you, you want to be proud of your, unless you're a slumlord, which I know you're not, and I'm not, and John's not. <laughs> Try so not to be. You want to make sure that you're, well, I don't know about John. I've never been to the UK <laughs> this week. I I've never been to the, I don't know where, I've, I've never been to the UK where he's got his rental over there. But yeah, I, I, I know that we're not like that. I know you're not like that. And it's, it's definitely a big sense of pride. Well, the big, I'd like to talk oh, about sorry. that Sir, no, no, go ahead. I was just going to say the big connection for me is we're buying these old buildings and yes, they're run down, but we still see like the beauty and the coolness of them. And I think, oh my gosh, like that could be three generations forward. And they would be like my great grandkids saying like your mom or your great grandmother and great, great grandmother built this building. And so it's super real to me because I'm buying those buildings that were built several generations ago and hopefully building buildings that several generations from now, people will have the same feeling. At least if they tear it down, it will hurt their soul. I want it to be beautiful enough that they at least pause and think about it before they just knock it down. Yeah, right. Katie's going to come back and haunt me for tearing this thing down. Exactly. I like that. Um, I I would love to get into everybody's favorite subject, which is money. 
And, I want uh, more. How? Uh, since yeah, right? <laughs> Don't we all? But it makes the Possibly. world go round. And and um, for those that are just trying to get into this, you know, you're kind of a two parter here. You you've been in what the majority of our listeners are in now, which is fix and flips and burrs and buy and holds and long term rentals. And then you've now into what a lot of people want to get to, which is redevelopment. So maybe you can touch on both subjects. What were you using as far as financing goes for your early stage renovations and your long-term holds? And then uh, I'm sure it's a big can of worms to get into the financing because uh, I know I happen to know that you, you do a lot of partnerships uh, when it comes to some of your, your revitalization for your downtown stuff. Maybe touch on that a little bit too. Yeah. So when we started, well, you know, that $17,000 first condo, I used private money for one. I don't think I could have even gotten a bank loan for 17000 right? But I really wanted to borrow money. So I just, you know, it wasn't hard to find somebody who would make a $17,000 loan. Um, when we did our apartments, we just provided the down payment. And it's been a long time. But if I remember right, we had to put like 15 or 20% down. And then we finance the purchase and the renovations from the um, bank. So, you know, we were buying those. Man, I can't even remember, but for sure less than $200,000. Um, and so, you know, you, I was, you know, in a corporate job. And then my business partner obviously had built assets. So we had the money there for those down payments. What once we went to flipping, we didn't want to use bank debt because that was a higher risk, right? Could we actually sell it when we were done? So when we sold those fourplexes, the equity that we, the forced equity and the natural appreciation, even over such a short period of time, just because of the time period, provided that seed money to start our first few flips to prove that that was working um, and that we could make money. So our first flips, we just did 100% cash that we had gotten out of our uh, fourplexes. And then um, the flips, you know, like they just generate pops of cash and they fed each other. The problem with flips, and anybody who's in, in flipping knows this, is it never is like, okay, we're going to start house one in January, and then we'll start house two in March, and then house three, you know, it's going to be spread out really even, and then we're going to have this house sell. It's never like that. It's like we're always buying everything at once or we're selling everything at once. So you're either flushing cash or you're smooth out of cash. So I had gone back to a friend of mine and just said, you know, like I'm having issues with cash flow, um, just in certain times, like I have this house under contract, but it hasn't closed yet. So I can't get the next house. And he actually was like, well, why don't we just do a line of credit? And, um, so that's how it started. I didn't do hard money loans. They sounded scary and expensive. And he just offered, look, I'll just have this money here. You draw on it when you need The interest was expensive, but there were no fees. I had a door to deed of trust and we just kind of put it in the drawer and would record it if we needed it. So it was super simple. So it was worth kind of the high interest rate to do it. And it became our working capital. Then when we started getting that pile of money, we need to invest it one for taxes purposes, then we would start just flipping it into the, the smaller projects. And the first one we did, it was with partners. So the general contractor, um, did sweat equity, the appraiser, I mean the, um, architect did sweat equity and then we put the cash into it and I have this relatively small deal with seven different people involved like because we were so scared I'll never do that again like every quarter I have to write seven tiny distribution checks because we have to split it so many ways I think it reminds me of how fearful I was on that first deal and then we did our first development deal, which was a seven town home. So we bought these three little houses that were rentals. They were low income rentals and they cash flowed just like they were. But we thought, what if we could build townhomes here? And the reality is there had not been new houses built in our downtown in my lifetime. 
So we had no idea if it would appraise. We had no idea if people would really buy it. So we said, let's just buy it as a rental and go talk to the city. And when we went and talked to the city, that's when we learned the power of being aligned with city officials. You'll never be motivated the same way as city officials, right? Their interests really are different than your interests. You're trying, you know, to survive and feed your family and they collect paychecks and they're trying to enforce rules. So those will never align. But if you're all headed to the same direction where you all want a beautiful downtown that's being revitalized, they can provide a lot of value. And they, I said, Hey, we want to build five townhomes. Well, I didn't know there was a minimum lot width and that we couldn't fit five townhomes on there, but they're like, Hey, we'll do an exception. You can have narrower houses. And, um, we were, they were like, but we want you to park in the back instead of the front. I'm like, sure, whatever. Well, there's not enough room. No problem. We'll give you part of the land to give you the ability to park in back. And what we learned was in old downtowns, they usually have super wide street right away. So they're like 80 foot wide. And that's how they prevented fire back in the day. Well, now that that damn fire marshal makes you have 16 different fire prevention mechanisms in every building you build, you don't need an 80 foot right away. No offense, Kyle. Um, <laughs> on the fire men. I love a fireman. <laughs> I hate a fire marshal. Um, so anyway, um, so they released a lot of the land yeah, and then they said, <laughs> they said, Hey, you know what we can do? We can give you enough land, make your houses narrow enough that you could build seven. And we were like, what? And we left there and they were so excited about it that we were scared. We were like, what do they know that we don't know? So we did, we built the first three. And sold them and then built the next four. So again, very small increments to make sure we weren't taking too big of a risk. And what it turned out was we would have only broken even had we been able to build five. It was the last two that the city gave us the land to be able to build seven where all the profit actually came in. But on that deal, my investors were actually past employers and people that I had worked with. And so I knew them all very well. They were nervous about doing a bank loan on a project that had not been done before without comps. So they said, hey, let's do it 100% cash on this first one. They were also conservative. But then we don't have the pressure of the bank. If we have to hold it longer, if we have to rent it, we don't have debt service to worry about. So they provided the money. We provided the land, the work, and then we sold them, and we split it 50-50 so that we didn't – I mean, we had, like, design fees in it, but they provided the bulk of the money. And then when we rolled – we got the land across the street and rolled into phase two, then everyone was comfortable with proving the concept. So they provided the money plus we got debt on it and that allowed us to build faster and bring on multiple projects. So everything we've done, like I say, you know, Oh, don't have fear. Just jump in build the parachute on the way down. But it's, it's not recklessly, right? It's still with like methodical thoughts about plan A, B and C and worst case scenarios and just making sure that we would be comfortable with whatever that worst case scenario is and then picking up momentum and velocity. The reality is, had we not had any fear back then, we would probably be retired now because that was the sweet spot of real estate. Had we built everything we could as fast as we could, it would have paid us in dividends. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> Casey, how, how did you find those, um, those partners to, uh, or, or those financiers? Yeah, so relationships and network. So I only have a handful of business partners, like four, I think, and four or five. And most of them I've known over 20 years. 
And the very first partner I got was actually a business owner for a startup company that I worked for. And when he sold the company, I had quasi equity and it gave me the runway to quit my job. Basically I had one year salary. And that's when I said, I'm just going to pay myself just like I would with a salary. And at the end of the year, if real estate doesn't work out, I'm going to go back and get another job. So he was kind of my mentor, my consultant. So I'm showing him my business plan. I never thought that I never thought people would lend me money. It never occurred to me to even ask for that. Like that seemed unreasonable. Why would people give me their hard earned money? Right. That's how, like how many limiting beliefs I came into all this with. So I'm just showing my business plan and how the numbers are going to work, getting his advice because he was a business owner and he's an entrepreneur. And he said, Hey, would you let me invest in this deal? And I was like, oh, no, like, I don't want to take your money because what if things go wrong? And he was like, so basically what you're saying is you have an opportunity and you don't trust my judgment enough to allow me to invest in your project. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Man, talk about a hot seat. Yeah, yeah. He's basically like, you're insulting my financial intelligence by telling me I don't know a good deal. And so he's the one who kind of helped me overcome that mindset. I got to interrupt you and ask, how did, how did that, that talk back make you feel? I mean, to me, I'm sitting here trying to put myself in your shoes. Like, how would I feel if somebody said that back to me? And it's like, he just gave you a major vote of confidence. Oh, it, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, totally. It totally. That, that's huge. And, and yeah, it raised the pressure. Like it intensified the pressure because now, I mean, from his perspective, it was genius because now I have all this pressure that he has. Comp- he has more faith in me than myself. Basically, is what he told me. And then he was very intentional in the way he worded it. He's basically trying to teach me a lesson. And then we spent a lot of time about. So, what investors do you go after? Do not go after an investor that needs the money, because that is too much pressure. And you don't want yeah. to have to make decisions to that will impact their lifestyle, right? They need food, fire, and water, and you don't need to be involved in that. But once you get to a certain level of income, your challenge is continuing to put that income to work. And those are the investors that you want to go after. And so he was my first investor. And then two more people that he knew, he was like, Hey, these guys want to invest too. So they really all came from him. And then a third one was, or the fourth one was my original first person I sat next to when I worked at a commercial bank, who's like number four or five from the top now who makes massive income and has zero tax write-offs. And so, uh, yeah, so they invest in our projects and are the size of our projects. You know, each project that we do, that's a redevelopment, we raise anywhere from 500 to a million bucks. So we're not talking about a huge amount of money and we want to keep as much as we can. So we provide as much as that cash as possible. And then we fill gap, stop the rest with these investors. And so the money really does go a long way. Now we're nearing a point where they're probably going to be at their capacity geographically and in one investor. So we might have to go out and find other investors, but I've turned, they've, they've, they've made me spoiled. They never see my projects. They never have any idea what's going on. They totally have faith in me. I love that. I do not want some needy, high-touch investor now, so I'm kind of spoiled. Nothing wrong with that, yeah, right? Yeah. That, that's, that, that should be – that's a lot of confidence. <laughs> I think that's a great deal. Yeah. Now, you, right now, you, you're dealing with a couple of different things. You're in the commercial space in downtown Bryan, mm-hmm. and you're also doing, I guess, multifamily commercial, you know, five-plus units. Um, so you're developing both. Is that right? 
Yeah. So our deal is we'll develop anything that can be deeded as a single family property. So like townhomes, we'll sell that to create income, to be able to put into our mixed use or multifamily buildings so that we can own a higher percentage of them. So we do both. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now I'm curious about time frame on this type of thing. So, and I'm sure it's so different from project to project, depending on size. Maybe you can just break down one of these for us. Um, so from the time that you find this deal mm-hmm. until the time that you close it, you do all of your renovations and you have these things available for lease. What are you guys, like I said, you can pick just one cause I'm sure they're all different, but about what, what kind of time frame are your investors expecting to have to have their money out before they start getting paid back? Yeah. So it it does depend on the project, but because even if it's a renovation or new construction, it's so massive that the timeline is similar. What's a bigger driver is where you are. And all of ours are in Texas, in a town that moves relatively quickly. So we'll buy the property. We being like me and my business partner, we take the land down. Sometimes it has a house on it and we can rent it. Sometimes it's just a lot if it's a new construction type deal. And then we'll go ahead and get all the architectural design and engineering and zoning and permitting and all of that done. So that when we take the investor's money, it's when construction starts. From the time that we buy it, if we're able to buy and just go right into design, it can be six months to a year, depending on the level of design that's needed from an architect. So we'll hold a property generally about a year. Best case scenario, though, it has houses on it and it's not costing us any money. And then once the investor comes in, it can take us up to a year to build it. And then we tell them two years to lease it up. Usually we're leased up within six months. But the goal is to take, we'll do a two-year interest-only note regardless. And the goal is for that second year when it's interest-only but income earning, that we're um, stocking all that cash away to be our reserve. So that as soon as we get our reserve met, we start paying quarterly dividends. So usually within 24 months, we're starting dividends. And if it's a refinance, usually within six months of getting it fully leased, we'll refinance. So they're just starting to really get their quarterly dividends. And generally, we'll get 60 to 100% of their money back at that refinance, which is about two years in. And what, what do those dividends typically look like? Yeah, so usually like our 20 loft um, a building, usually between 40 and 60 a year is the free cash flow that we try to redistribute on our, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20-ish units. That's about what the um, free cash flow is after debt service. Nice. Yeah, and which is like 8 That's to 10% pretty, cash on cash. And, you know, I yeah. try and hit at least 15% ROI. Right now, it's a, it's a challenge, right? Because all real estate is overinflated because interest rates squeeze. have been low. It's the squeeze. Price discovery is happening so fast. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. That leads me on to my next question, actually, which is, what? so if someone's getting started in this, what are the kind of trends you've observed over the last few years or the, probably the last six months more than anything um, in terms of changes, like I guess rate changes, mm-hmm. but labor costs, um, yeah. rents. How are you tracking all those variables? Yeah, so it's interesting because we were just wrapping up a mixed use building. It was relatively small and it happened at the worst time of all this mess, right? So we had floating rate construction loan and that rate just went up and up and up and up and up and up. And, up, and I think it's like at eight and a half percent now. 
Um, we just finished it. We were in the peak. We bought the most expensive lumber. <laughs> we had theft because Double whammy. yes, and then we had theft because prices were so high. People were stealing stuff off the job site. Lumber. We had the pi- the copper torn out. Um, like everything that could go wrong. Labor was at its peak. Everyone was slow. So you're paying more than you ever have for labor, getting the worst service that you've ever gotten. And it was like the worst time to be building. Um, We ended up going back to the bank to get a little more money to finish it out. The good news is our loan to value is great. We're still at only 65% loan to value now with the current appraise. The tenants have moved in and it's, we're, this is our first month to actually collect rent, but it floats for another, you know, year until it, the rate sets because how we do it is we always get the bank to do two years construction and then automatically term, even if the term isn't great. That way we're not at risk if banks aren't lending on mixed use properties anymore or what we know we have some permanent financing in place. And so that was going on. We're finishing that one up during that time. We were designing our one. We just broke ground on, which is an 18 unit apartment building. We've done all the site work. It was over budget But I couldn't get a framer to bid it because the framers are like, I can build six houses and not look at the plans, or I can build your apartment building and actually have to read the plans and figure out what you want because it's a different, unique project. I don't even want to do that yours. And then all of a sudden, about, I don't know, two months ago, I started getting texts from random people that said, I see that y'all just poured a slab. We'd like to bid your framing. So when that started happening, yeah, as soon as that Mm -hmm. started happening, I realized our subs are looking ahead because they're not, you know, we're dealing with relatively small subs. They're not forecasting the economy, right? They just, what job is next? And they all looked up and realized we don't have a job next. So we pulled all our contracts, anything that hadn't started. So paving, electrical, all of it, we pulled the contracts. We just sat while we were finishing up the slab and all that and um, just sat. And then we rebid our electrical, and it came in 35000 less. We got a framer who's doing it on budget. So that's when I say, like, price discovery is happening so fast. We're still going to be over budget on this project because we were for the site work. But if we could start it today and go forward, I think we're pretty much going to be on budget for everything that's happening now forward. We still got what we've already incurred that's going to be over budget. And so that feels good. We leased up our other building that just finished, so demand is still there. So the returns are not going to be as good because we're going to be over budget, but it is still going to be a cash-flowing asset. I still feel good about it appreciating, um, and it'll be interesting whenever we go to do the refinance to see to see what the value is and if values are going up or down. So far, we haven't had the impact of the cap rate reducing the value of the properties, but it could just be the timing of how our projects are working out right now. You know, that's something that that could be coming. But the thing that we did on this project that really helped was we asked the bank at the start of construction, will y'all just fix our rate instead of floating it during construction? And they said yes. (laughs) I may have said because another bank did too, but I don't know. But they said yes. (laughs) And (laughs) And so right now we're under construction and rates are going up, but we're set at our rate. And so we didn't know to ask that on the last one. But when we saw the impacts of it, when we put this loan in place, we said, let's do it. Now we have another one fully permitted. We're ready to start and break ground on. But with rates like they are right now, the cost hasn't come down enough for, it just seems like too big a risk for too little return. So we're just kind of sitting, hanging out, probably going to go to the city 
see if they'll give us some concessions to try and get our costs down to see if we can make it make sense. Because the challenge is I still think what you want is an asset. It will appreciate over time, but you don't want to stretch yourself so thin that, you know, if there's a stumbling block, it takes you down. So that's always the risk. Do you, do you think there's going to be a – there's kind of a pause, right, going on in terms of Correct. people figuring out what rates are doing and what prices are doing? Mm-hmm. Is that going to impact these kind of projects across the country, do you think? Is there going to be a, a slowdown in, in those Did kind of freeze? assets being refreshed or regenerated? Oh, no, no I think I lost you. Can you all hear me? Yeah. Did we lose you? I think we lost her. Dude, you're back. Oh, there she is. Y'all t- there you are. Did y'all... F- you're, Katie, you're back. You're, I'm back. Y'all just froze on me. I was like, oh, no, I'm so sorry. Okay. I'm it's okay. John s- loves editing. It's okay. Yeah, this will be so fun. <laughs> You'll get to look at my face longer as you I'm cut just, it out. I'm just going to leave it. <laughs> yeah, right? You probably will. So you said, is this yeah. going to impact... That's all I heard. Yeah, across the country, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't hear uh, the whole okay, question. Okay, <laughs> fine. Yeah, so um, I, I guess with with the trends we're seeing, with kind of people pausing and waiting to see what prices are doing and, and what rates are going to do in the next few months, and they've gone up again today, mm-hmm. um, what do you think the impact's going to be for these kind of projects across the country? Is, it, is there going to be a slowdown, or is it now an opportunity to jump in? Um, I think... Th- I think it's, it doesn't matter what project you're in, right? Right now, if you're going to be doing deals, you need to be really careful and you need to have extra margin. Now, that is a bigger challenge with new construction. So I do think prices will have to continue to drop and I think they will drop because the reality is we think that real estate has gone up because of appreciation, demand, whatever. But the reality is real estate has gone up because of interest rates. They have artificially driven them up. And so if you think of interest rates at 6 or 7%, historically, that is still a good interest rate. The reason it is not a good interest rate right now is because real estate is so expensive. So something has to give for that to readjust. I think that there will definitely be less development. Anything that isn't currently under a financing structure Something has to change. So they're either going to have to ha- be able to get it done cheaper. The city's going to have to give us, like I said, concessions. Rents are going to have to go up exponentially. But something has to change to make the risk worth it. Um, the interesting thing is that our supply is so low. And so the good news is there is a need for housing to be built or renovated or whatever. But at this very moment in time, you have to be able to create a deal in order for it to work. So an example of that, we're fixing a break ground on a property that is a single family residential lot, 7,000 square foot, and it has like a 1,300 square foot house, a boarded up house on it. So most people would look at that and say, we can renovate and flip that house, or we could tear it down and build a new house. Well, the numbers don't work for either one of those. But what we looked at is what would work. And because of its dimensions, we weren't able to do townhomes because it's not deep enough to get the parking and the house on it. But we were able to do what they call a cottage cluster. 
And so that's where you have non-traditional lots. They're smaller, but they don't all touch the public right away, which is against city ordinance in most towns. If you have a lot, it has to have public access to get to it. That these cottage clusters are being done in redevelopments and in kind of emerging um, downtowns that allows you to congregate the parking together, yet still build single-family houses on the lots. And so our town had never done this before. We went to PNZ. It failed. We chose to go ahead and push it through to city council, and they passed it unanimously. And so now we've taken a 7,000-square-foot house, and we're going to be able to build six houses on it. So that works because we are able to create a deal. So it's like that. That's just one example in redevelopment, but it's like that in every deal, whether it's an apartment building that you're trying to figure out how to make it work or, you know, whatever it is, you're going to have to create deals. If you are just looking through the lens of what you've done the last 10 years, I don't think there's very many deals that pencil right now. Yeah, it's a really good point. There's, there's a, a lot of creativity that needs to be exercised right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but not to the point, obviously, where you're you're making risky, riskier deals. Really, the, the a risky market's not the time to make risky deals, and, exactly. and I think you would agree with that. But there are ways to do deals that other people don't think about. And we've talked about cottage clusters and ADUs and things. If you go mm-hmm. way back in the Investories uh, episode yeah. vault, you'll find uh, we had Derek Shirell on here that went through a lot of that stuff. And and so if you wanted some definitions, you can go back and listen to that episode. But um, I love that. I love the idea of being creative and seeing the potential of a lot for maybe a different use than what it is. But having that relationship with the city is so super important. Um, trying to be you know, respectful of your time. I, I still have a thousand and one questions, but unfortunately, we don't Same. have enough time for that. Um, I would like to know a little bit more about you and your, your social media presence and, and some of the things that you're doing on there. Because people don't know this. You know, A lot of people don't know this yet, but you've got a, a mentorship program, although it's not open right now because you're full. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, but there's a good chance that that could open back up again. And I'm sure they're, including myself, would love to know a million other things uh, about what your, your mentorship program and your coaching is, is all about. Uh, tell us about your Instagram and uh, what kind of content you put out on there so, so that people can find you. Yeah, I'd love to. So you can find me at Katie Develops on Instagram. And I have been building my Instagram for several reasons. But one of the biggest is when I started doing redevelopments, I told you guys, there's no books. There's no person who does this. There's no podcast out there that focused on redevelopment. And a lot of the information that is out there, it's from a very regulatory engineer planner perspective, not from a real estate investor perspective. And I just started getting a lot of people reaching out and asking super simple questions. But if you don't know the process, it all seems complicated. So I've just been putting information out there, which has gotten more and more people reaching out to me about it. So I decided, you know what, I'm just going to throw it out there and see if there's a need for like a development rookie course. And that's what I did. And it's been open two weeks and we've already filled all the spots, which is amazing because I really had no idea if people would be interested or not and got lots and lots of inquiries and had a lot of calls to make sure that they're all good fits. And so what that's told me is that there are a lot of people who see the opportunity in their town, but they're not willing to take the step because they don't know what to do. So I've really tried to use my social media as a way to educate people on things to think about, who to talk to. I mean, the biggest thing is, we always say this, call the city. So I don't know how many people are employed by your city, but it's like 20,000, you know, in mine. So it's like, what does that even mean? 
who is the city? Like, do you ring, ring, hey, city? So the process is so intimidating. So I'm just trying to use it to help educate people to do just simple steps to at least get them in the right direction. And then people who want something more focused, if it turns out that I like the coaching and that people get value from it, then I'll reopen it after this course and do another one and hopefully even be even better at it since it'll be my second one. So, but yeah, the whole goal is to try and give people resources to be able to do and take advantage of this trend that's going on right now that seems super intimidating that if I can do it, trust me, anybody can do it. It's not that hard. It's amazing. No, it sounds, it sounds great. I'm, this is something I've looked into and, you know, it's a bit shiny object syndrome Mm -hmm. and kind of picking a direction. Yeah. Um, But I, I really like the idea of the, the value you're adding to communities and the kind of giving back element of, of kind of regenerating, Mm -hmm. Uh, places where we all live and we all see decay um i have a personal story about that in my hometown there's um, a couple of buildings that are just collapsing in on themselves and the council are very uh against any form of re- redevelopment reuse that kind of stuff which is kind of sad so it's I frustrating there's a, there's a game to play mm-hmm. the right council right yes yeah you definitely want to be in a place that wants you that wants to have done what you're doing. Otherwise it's very challenging and it's like beating your head up against the wall every day which some people are cut out for that I'm not. I just want to all be pulling in the same direction because, you know, PC is not my main strength. So if I have to go in and be politically correct in order to get something done, I'm going to blow. That's going to be a dumpster fire. I can't. I can confirm she's not the most PC, but that is exactly why we love her so much. (laughs) She's always a hoot to have on a call. Yeah. Thanks. Katie, uh, what's the best best way for people to get in touch with you other than Instagram? Or is it just Instagram? Yeah, that's probably the easiest way. If you just DM me on there, then I will definitely get back to you. So definitely Instagram at Katie Develops. I also have a free download in my link that's just kind of like a beginner guide and help see if you have the right personality for redevelopment. So if if it's something you're interested in, get that free download and yeah, reach out to me. I'd love to hear your story, what you're doing and I'm here to help. Katie, we'd love to have you back on, and we're actually going to do a full season on development. Oh, um, exciting. In the next few months. So we'd love to get you back on, talk case studies, and maybe run through some numbers and, and go a little deeper if you'd be uh, amenable to that. I'd love that. And hopefully I won't even be bankrupt by then. That'll be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a target. <laughs> <laughs> there's a target oh well let's end on a, a positive ray sunshine kind of note katie i love it Kate, katie thank you so much for your time today um we really do appreciate you and uh we'll be back next week awesome thank you, thanks guys it's been fun thank you for listening to the investories podcast we all have a story what's yours the investories podcast